Get an inside view of the latest private equity deals and the people behind them, and meet the people who make it happen. Welcome to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Host Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team six members interview company founders who have succeeded and some that haven't. Each show will feature lively interviews with company founders to find out whether there is a deal or no deal. Now here is Kevin Fechtmeyer and his team of experts. Good morning, Voice America listeners. This is the very first episode of Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code. I'm host Kevin Feckmeyer. I've been a private equity investor since 1990. And in all candor, I've been a recovering investment banker for 14 years, so I've seen both sides of the track. I've worked with and co-invested with hundreds of the top private equity funds. Many of their partners are friends and personal investors in my firm. Right now, I manage Cave Creek Capital. Our portfolio is in lots of industries consumer, manufacturing services, and today they generate a total of nearly $400 million in annual revenues. We look at hundreds of deals a year, only do one or two investments per year, and about one or two sale or recaps per year. So our team's pretty busy. Why would I have the time to do this radio show? When I was asked, I wasn't sure, but I thought about it, and I realized this market needs quite a bit more sunlight. When successful business owners kept coming to my firm, I was always shocked at how little they knew about this market, the wild misconceptions that could grow out of a single conversation at their country club. So anyway, let's start off by stating the obvious. Private equity rules the financial world today with trillions of dollars committed and invested. It's long since replaced the public markets as the largest source of financing for middle market companies. We have the highest paid executives, the prettiest offices, the smartest people, and if you're not sure, you can certainly ask them, and by far the very best birthday parties. There's a real fun article that came out last uh, couple years ago talking about all the different private equity titans and their birthday parties. You've probably heard about Steve Schwartzman, Paul McCartney played his party, Leon Black of Apollo had Elton John at his birthday party, and David Bonderman had two birthday parties, one for his 60th and his 70th birthday party. The Rolling Stones played at one, and uh, I think we had uh, two that uh, the Creedence Clearwater Revival played at the other. So he's, uh, these guys are, have good parties. And then I guess that how does that relate to us, the entrepreneurs? If you're trying to raise capital for your company and you're trying to figure out all the, the alternatives, it's not easy to find the basic information valuation and terms and who to contact at all these firms. You see, our market thrives on secrecy, inefficiency, industry jargon. Despite its huge size, there's nowhere to go to find public information about what's an average private equity deal, what are market terms and valuation. We use code words that sound good, like fair market value with no control premium, or proprietary relationships, or cost synergies. Now these can mean a lot of different things. They may not be so good depending on whether you're a buyer or a seller. Now you won't hear me talking much on this show about the multi-billion dollar buyouts or the venture capital deals with high-flying technology and unicorn valuations of one billion or more. That's a different world. We work in the middle market where most of you work. Companies with 10 million up to maybe 500 million in sales. Almost every year, over 2,000 of these companies either sell or close a deal with a private equity firm. 
And that's out of 150,000 businesses of that size in the country, in the U.S. So if you're an owner and executive at one of these companies, you should pay attention. Your net worth, your compensation, your quality of life will all be determined by what you learn from this show. Every week we'll analyze deals. We tell you what people are really saying about some of them. We interview a market expert to see what trends there are. And we'll often bring in a company, a company that's closed a deal, maybe thinking about a deal, or wants to close a deal. We'll ask them the same kind of questions that we ask in our due diligence sessions. You can decide whether your company might survive this kind of questioning, how you can prepare. Sometimes we'll come to a conclusion. There's a deal or there's no deal. More often, it's get your act together and do this, and then you'll have a deal. So let's talk a little bit about how the show will be structured. There's going to be a, a section every week. We're going to talk about the headlines that, that matter, the headlines that the private equity community and market are looking at, and talk a little bit about the deal statistics that we're seeing in the market. There's probably a $400 billion of deals total, but the vast majority that we're going to talk about are in the middle market. We're going to talk about the deals we've seen in our own firm, what we're seeing in our pipeline at Cave Creek Capital. Um, we've got a couple good guests on the show here, too. We'll tell you about those later. Um, looking at the latest issue of Fortune's term sheet, I think that's one of the best deal rags here in the industry. Last week, they chronicled 72 venture capital deals for $2.5 billion and 31 private equity deals, of which half they didn't even disclose an amount. But of those they did disclose, it was almost $5 billion. So they're much bigger. What was interesting also is the, a lot of the headlines people are talking about talk about you know, what's hot and what's not. And we can maybe look at that, and that has an influence on how entrepreneurs sometimes shape their business plans, sometimes not. And first of all, the news all last week was the tax plan announced by the Republican Congress, featured lower corporate rates, and much to the sigh of relief of the industry did not touch the carried interest, which uh, allows us to get taxed for capital gains instead of ordinary income. That was a hot button for a while. In ad addition, I thought that it was kind of interesting to see what people call venture capital today. And just as a note, when we got started in this business 25 years ago, we ended up with you know, 10 million or 20 million being a huge deal. Now that's a small deal. There was a deal announced last week for a company in China called WeLab, a Hong Kong-based financial tech startup, operates online lending platforms raised $220 million. I'm not sure I even call that venture capital. And interestingly enough, there was a couple small media deals. One that caught my interest and was very curious was Passion Flicks, like Netflix, but focused on the romance niche. Raised $4.5 million from someone called Tosca Musk, which you have to read the article to reveal that that's Elon Musk's sister. So needless to say, it's all in the family with the venture stuff. As we look at a lot of these deals, you know, the, the 70 deals that came out, there's a, there's a very significant theme. Um, a lot of these are in data security, you know, cloud platforms, and data processing, 
And you'll see that many of these venture deals won't exist in a year or two. There's a very high mortality rate. When you look in private equity, there's a, a very low mortality rate. On the average, um, most of our deals are successful over 20, 30, 40 years. It's a big difference between private equity and venture capital, and that's really important to note. A lot of executives confuse the two, and one has a very different risk profile. As I looked at the deal stats, I looked at our own pipeline. So what did we see this week? If we looked at the transactions that came in, we had 17 deals, and ranging from 22 million to looks like over a billion in one case, but that's unusual. I think the next largest company was 150 million. That's really the market we deal in, about 20 to 150 million. We have another 10 deals that we're not sure about, and at the end of the day, I think we're going to develop probably two or three of these into an investment. And these 27 deals came from a total of about 500 deals that we've seen in the last year. So that gives you a sense of the mortality rate. For our first show, I just want to give a little orientation about what we typically see. And we're going to have another show, I think, next week on the do's and don'ts of private equity. But there's a lot of private equity uh, that, that invests in early stage companies. And that's not us. We're, we're not going to be a seed stage. We're not going to be an angel uh, stage. There's a lot of people that, that initially start their companies with their own capital. And I think that, that kind of garners a lot of respect from people in the institutional community because they're putting their money where their mouth is. They're risking everything and they're starting their own company or they're going to their family, or they're going to their friends. So the vast majority of transactions that, that you know, start out, start out under a million dollars of funding. And we talk about this all the time. We get business plan after business plan where they're just not ready. They're, they think they're ready, but they're not. A lot of times their revenue run rates only two, three, four, five million. They've got the beginnings of a good business, but they don't really have a financeable business yet for an institution. We're going to spend our time talking about institutional financing. So these are the companies that have gone beyond the, the seed stage. They've gone beyond the angel stage. And they've gone beyond the friends and family stage. And typically, um, if you can't find anyone from your friends and family to invest with you, that probably tells you something. <laughs> maybe, there's a, maybe that's a symptom of, of something. And so a lot of this is really validation. So when we get into companies that we're working with, this is beyond the, the validation stage. You know, there's, there's already a demonstrated need for the product. There's already sales, there's customers. So we're evaluating what the market is. We're valuing the size of the market. We're valuing the competition and how much money we want to put into those deals. And a lot of what we do is, is it's really a team effort. It's, it's, it's generally a, a I, I would say it's a, it's a collective decision, but it's led by you know, one or two people who have expertise in that industry. You know, I always love to watch the, the show Shark Tank, which I can do for about five or 10 minutes. And they always make instantaneous decisions on whether they're gonna invest and they do so you know, each individually and they do so in a matter of minutes. That virtually never happens in the real world. That uh, what we do is we spend time digesting a lot of information, working with companies, and it often takes several days or even weeks to make an investment decision, a good investment decision. And it's hard work. 
So a lot of what the show will be about is be bringing on guests who have done it before and who have been successful and have grown businesses. We've got a lot of very successful businesses we've worked with in the past. If you go to our website, you'll see. But most of them have grown on average by 300% or even 500% or even 10 times. And many of these companies, I think, would be good examples to, to follow in different industries, consumer, in you know, the manufacturing or specialty manufacturing and, uh, and services, primarily outsourced business services. So, you know, as we get involved in the, um, in the, in the discussion later today, we've got a, a really great group of guests and Mark Sandroff is, is the first and we'll introduce him after the break, but uh, suffice to say, he's one of the members of our deal team six, as we've called it. We've got uh, several members on our partnership group that have extensive experience in different areas. We've got one partner who's ex uh, very experienced in consumer, another in chemical and industrial. We've got another who's done insurance for 35 years and is very knowledgeable in the regulatory environment there. That's one industry that's got a tremendous amount of regulatory risk. So we've, we've tried to develop the best of breed from around the country in each area so that when we go in to look at an investment, we can develop the best thinking around it and create the best investment outcome. And it's about a partnership with the founder. And I think that's going to be subject of our last segment. We're going to talk with a, a leader of a company that has a national chain of, of uh, retail units called Great Harvest Bread. And we're excited to have him on board and you know, listen to his story and also talk a little bit about you know, what, what his plans are for the future and how we might look at a potential transaction with him. So you get to look real time and, into how a private equity firm looks at a deal and can develop a, a thinking around a, an investment and structuring investment. Now there's some things that, that we can't really talk about on the show. So uh, we're not doing this to be overly secretive, but if we've got different restrictions that we've agreed to prior to looking at a business plan, we have to honor those. So. I think it'll be important to, to you know, create um, you know, a good dialogue, but when there's something we can't talk about, we'll tell you. There's frequently uh, confidentiality agreements that restrict you know, the identity of a, of a target company that we're gonna buy, or the reasons why we had to fire the last CEO uh, at the board, or the reason the founder had to ask his partner to leave. Sometimes these are a little sensitive for you know, public consumption, but where we can talk about these things is, is on a no-names basis where we don't reveal some of the identities and we can talk about them as an illustrative example that you know, people can learn from. You know, what, what are the things that will stop a private equity investor dead in their tracks and kill a deal? You know, we're, we're going to have a whole segment next week on private equity don'ts. And then what are the things that really impress a, you know, an investor? We'll, essentially make you one of the 2% of the deals that they end up investing in. And we call that the private equity do list. So anyway, we've got a number of episodes. Each, this one's going to focus on Mark Sandroff, who's a well-known CEO coach and a very successful entrepreneur himself. And at the end of the day, we'll have a very good sense of what he does to add value and, and create new ways of thinking uh, on founder, on the part of founders, on the part of the CEOs, and uh, then we, then Mark and I will be able to talk you know, candidly to Eric, 
and trying to understand his his objectives, his company, and then you know that I think will be uh, at the end of the day very illustrative to anyone operating a retail chain. So I think we're coming up to our break now, and I want to you know leave it at that. If um, if if uh, I, I'm looking, we've got less than 30 seconds, so. We, We'll kick off next time with an introduction of Mark, and we can lead into the discussion of what CEO coaching is and what that's all about. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan, set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning in to Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, Call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. Hello, we're back from the break. This is Kevin Feckmeyer, host of Deal Junkie. Uh, my guest, Mark Sandroff, is a very successful CEO coach, as well as a past entrepreneur and private equity executive. Let me let's give a little bio on him and then introduce him, and he can tell you a little bit about what he's doing. Um, we call him Coach Sandroff. You can hear the cheers now because he's one of the really be- one of the strongest assets we have on our team. Uh, we call him the Deal Team Six, and uh, when we have a situation with a CEO or a founder that has complicated problems, succession planning, uh, strategic issues, and they need to, they're not ready for a deal, but they need some time to think and they need some wise counsel. Uh, Mark, who's a 
leads a firm called Cadre Partners is really instrumental. He has over 30 years of experience in the private equity world as an entrepreneur. He built and sold his first company at the age of 23 uh, for uh, three times his investor return. He then joined Allstate Ventures and Essex Ventures and built those up to over $600 million. Uh, he then wasn't done. He then started an additional company, built that from a revenue run rate of $8 million to $38 million, and sold it to Walgreens. So we've got a, a bona fide successful entrepreneur here who's been a tremendous resource. Uh, Mark, let me uh, hand it over to you and tell us a little about what you do. Well, thankfully, you didn't mention all the dumb mistakes I made over the years. I appreciate that. I think I've learned more from my missteps than my successes. But um, what I basically do is I partner with the management team of entrepreneurial companies to help get them to the next step. And the next step usually is really building value in their company and then sometimes going out for financing, sometimes positioning the company for sale or positioning the company to make an acquisition or for some other rapid growth strategy. But the key really is the partnership that I build with the management team because I don't have all the answers, but by putting our heads together, I think we get a much better result. I, I love the fact that you mentioned the mistakes. I probably should have mentioned that earlier. That's always the more educational part. I. I have to say, I mean, I'd like to learn just a, a moment how you got started and how you got your education, because I, I do see that you were a struggling student. You barely squeaked into Washington University and then had to go to your backstop school, University of Chicago. But other than that, uh, you know, tell us a little bit how you learned your trade. You know, well, I'm very uh, proud of my education um, and learned a lot in those schools. I think I... Uh, really learned a lot of skills just in the back alleys being an entrepreneur. Um, I was lucky to start early, had some good mentors along the way. Always important to take advice from those people who are a few steps ahead of you. And uh, I think my best learning really, the experience of actually out there doing it and making mistakes and pulling back and rethinking things and then trying again has been my best education. Like, what is it that, that you find that, that a lot of entrepreneurs miss? Because you talked about it, it, it. The biggest criticism we get in the private equity business is, hey, you haven't done it before. And you have. You're, you're very different in your background. How, what's the biggest learning that you had? Well, there's many. One of them, I think, that I address for all the time is, you know, I always say that business would be a lot more fun if we all didn't have to manage and be leaders among a lot of people. And I think one of the challenges that many entrepreneurial managers have is how to provide leadership, how to be clear with the people who report to you, how to point everyone towards common goals. Um, I think really leadership qualities, performance metrics, clarity and communication, they're all the same thing as getting people focused on the right things and then building a culture to support them. And is there a secret sauce? I mean, you talk about leadership, and that's always like a, an overused term, I found, in, in, in many circles, particularly consultants who have never had a leadership position. But what, what is the secret sauce that, that, that helps drive leadership, in your opinion? I think two things, really. One is focus. I think that you've got to focus on fewer goals when you're in a smaller or mid-sized company because your bandwidth and your failure... Our rate is so high. Your bandwidth is 
very low. You don't have lots of people to throw at, at problems and challenges. So I think focusing on fewer problems and getting your team to focus on things. And then I also think performance metrics. Understanding what success is. And if you can quantify it, I think that's great. You can't quantify everything in business. But, boy, life would be a lot easier if you could judge your or evaluate your progress by looking at performance metrics. Like, like so I'm very big on those things. What's your best performance metric that you've seen companies really measure well and, and useful and, and be useful? Oh, my God. You know, uh, most companies have somewhere between 10 and maybe 20, 25 separate performance metrics. Um it really depends on the area. You know, if you're in the manufacturing side, you might have a certain set of metrics. If you're in sales and marketing, they may be a different set of metrics. Um, I, it's funny. I run into companies who either have very few metrics or companies that have, you know, 200 metrics. Hmm. And it's hard to see the forest of the trees with those. But I think, again, both of those, if you have too many or not enough, really confuse your clarity on what you need to accomplish. Like I know, well, Mark, we've known each other for years, and you know, you get, you always get brought in when there's a point of pain, like something's happened or there's a wake up call. You know, someone says, "Whoops!" You know, maybe my brother in law wasn't the best sales manager. That kind of thing. What what is what is the point of pain you find most often that that leads to the, the phone call to you? I think it's really. People having, they try it a couple times on their own, having not walked down the road before to maybe expanding their sales force or if they're management succession issues or making an acquisition. Um, you know, they try it a few times, they're not successful, and then they give a call to some folks who experienced it before. And like I said earlier, it's not about me waving my magic wand around and finding the solution are really partnering with the team and coming up with a solution that fits them. But I think the, the biggest reason people call is they keep pushing and doing something and they're not able to make progress. Hmm. And I, I, I'm sure you've got a, a super long list of these, but kind of if you can pick one, what's the absolute worst decision you've seen made by a CEO? Wow, that's an interesting question. I think the worst decision um, is in terms of hiring key executives. I think people frequently um, get focused on personalities of people rather than focusing on skill sets and experiences and how that new executive will change the culture of the organization. I think people get seduced by you know, they like this guy or that guy, but they lose focus on what it is that this person needs to accomplish. Yeah. The other one, I'll say another one, is I think I spend a lot of time helping companies understand how their offerings, either product or services, address their customers. And, and frequently, I think people lose track of what's really important to customers. And I know that's said all the time. But I see so in often companies that really don't understand how their customers find value in their products or services they're providing them. Can you give us an example of that and maybe sometime in your past for a specific? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was uh, 
Several years ago, working with a company, it was about a $100 million sales information services company. And when it was a company built by a father, he did a great job, and then he handed it off to his son, who also did a great job. But then after a few years, it appears like sales were leveling off after many years of growth. And the first thing when I got called in, I noticed that there really was only about 20% of the customers who were growing and using more of the features and more of the products offered by the, the company, which actually surprised them. They thought that, you know, that most of their customers were, were actually stepping up and buying more when it was really just a few customers, about 20%. And then when you got under the covers, what you learned was that to many of the customers, things were, it was a complicated product. And the customer service unit that helped simplify it actually made it more complicated. Hmm. So frequently, new customers would be communicating with the customer service staff. And what ended up happening, instead of finding solutions, they found that it was even more complicated. And they kind of gave up on things. Hmm. And What, ha- was, what happened? <laughs> well, that's right. People stopped buying more products. I mean, they, they bought a product with many features. When we surveyed the customers, we learned that out of about a 15 key features, they maybe used three or four of them. And they tried to understand the other features, and they never really were able to understand it. When they made inquiries of the company's customer service staff, they were a, a bit uppity, to be perfectly honest. They were not helpful and even sometimes turned people off. Hmm. And as a result, the customers who really were able to figure things out on their own thrived and did a good job because hmm. it was a good product. But the customers who needed a little bit of help kind of turned off, and some mm. of them stopped using the product or only used a few features, and that's mm. why the sales sort of leveled off. Mm. I know you're not talking about Microsoft, but uh, what what you can talk about, though, is, is at the end of the day, was the company successful or not in fixing it and being, uh, you know, either bought, sold, well, or whatever? It, it really took a lot of work. I mean, the first thing we had to do was really take a hard look at customer service. And we made some changes there so that they were more inviting to the people who came in. Um, and so a lot of their attitude went away, which took some time. And, and the other thing was we, we did a real effort to provide tools to the customer service staff so that it was easy for them to provide help. And then we started measuring things. Like you, you, did, you, you did a lot more than a lot of CEO coaches. I, a lot of time I think of a CEO coach as someone who sits in a conference room with a founder and dispenses advice. So it sounds like you were really in the, in the field working with some of the employees on this and, and customers. Well, you know, for me, I'm in the business of producing results, not in the business of hearing myself talk. So I, it's necessary, and in most companies, it is necessary if you're dealing with a customer, you have to be in front of them and listen to them. You know, hearing it through the salesman or through the marketing organization is one source of information, but hearing it right from the customer's uh, own voice is an important source. And then, of course, evaluating and watching, in this case, the customer service department and leader uh, was very important as well. In this case, the person who went customer service was a real sophisticated engineer. Yeah, you're going in and out. You're going in and out, Mark, just to let you know. Okay. Yeah. was a very sophisticated engineer, and he gave very sophisticated advice. The only problem was people did understand it. Yeah, too clever by half. I got gotcha. you. 
Well, talk about I – mean, let's talk about good news. Like, uh, and I want to hear about – you know, you, you've had I, – I love the fact that you've been, you know, you know, with hundreds of companies and on dozens of boards. And you've probably seen a lot of failures and successes. Um, and I, I joke that CEO coaching is basically private equity without the dilution. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, th- I do think you do a fantastic job. But there's some people you just can't help. And there's some people that just run with it and do great. Talk about the two ends of, the, of that spectrum. Talk about your most successful deal and what, and what lessons did you learn from that? And then your biggest failure. I want to go to each end. Well, let's see. I think the biggest failures have to do with the inability, my inability, the CEO's inability really to relate to each other. So I'm very sensitive to the fact that I don't feel there's good communication or good karma between the CEO and me, I'm not going to take the assignment because I'm not right all the time and they're not right all the time. But if we can't communicate really openly and honestly, then they're just wasting their money really with any coach. So I really look for people who, you know, really sincerely want to discuss some of the challenges that they have in front of them. So I think my biggest mistakes are when I take on assignments thinking somebody's going to change um, in their attitude about their business, and in fact, they don't. Um, Mark, Mark, we got uh, just a couple minutes left. I just want to know how much did you make on your most successful deal? Uh, did, give me, you know, get, get us, get us enticed and excited by your success here. Let's see. We had two deals that come to mind. Um, one, we probably invested two point four million and turned into seventy eight million. Good. And another one we made about, uh, let's see. What industry was the first one? If you can, In can... the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. And the second one was about 14 times our money in the information industry. Okay. Well, congratulations. Uh, if you, I know you've never lost money, but in case you do, <laughs> what, what would be your biggest loss? Oh, well, I've lost all my money in investments. Like and any any private equity investor who tells you they never lost money is either lying or not taking risk because you know it's difficult stuff. Yeah. So you know if you're willing to take the risk, then sometimes you things happen. Interesting. Well, now this is this is great food for thought, and you know uh, last last uh, comment. What advice would you give to CEOs who are considering? hiring a CEO coach or an advisor at your level, what, you know, what, what are the symptoms they should look for that, that would tell them, I'm, I, I need this? Well, I think if they're facing significant challenges, high growth, making an acquisition, positioning their company for sale, raising capital, and they've never walked down the path before, I think everyone benefits from somebody who's done it before. So I think if the challenges are new to them, they ought to think about it. And I also think, as I said earlier, uh, people who are open to discussing these things will do better. Great, um, great. Well, now this is this is terrific. Thank you, uh, you know, Mark. Uh, I think we're just running out of time here, but uh, really appreciate it. And then you and I get a chance to talk to Eric uh, in the next great. session and ask him about his business. Great. America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
Get a unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, then tune in to the Tech Cat Show Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business and syndicated to Voice America Women's Channel. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. This is Kevin Feckmeyer on Deal Junkie, and we are back with uh, the President and Chief Marketing Officer of Great Harvest Bread. Eric Hessian. He's also one of the primary owners. Um, we're excited to hear your story, Eric, because uh, I actually went to the store in Tempe and uh, tasted some of your product a couple weeks ago, and it was fantastic. I, I, I want to understand how you make the bread with that density and consistency and all the rest. So it's, it's a great quality product. I know you guys have a couple hundred units around the country, and you, you're looking to expand. Um, but let, let's start with you first. Um, Mark and I both want to hear about your story. Uh, I read your bio. Uh, it's impressive that, that you spent 30 years and rose to the top of McCann Erickson, one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. You've got uh, you know, branding expertise with AT&T, with Coca-Cola, Wendy's, Burger King, Applebee's, TGI Fridays. Um, it's, a, it's an impressive list. Um, I like the fact that you also have a little comment here in your bio. It says, one of the things I do know is that when you do things right and you're honest and authentic, and you're actually better at, at what you do than anyone else, then you have the opportunity for success. And you developed your motto for the, the Great Harvest Bread that said, bread the way it ought to be. And anyway, it, it just it struck and it resonated with me that a lot of the entrepreneurs coming into us today use the word authentic, and that's become a favorite buzzword. But I think you kind of were early in the decision and, uh, and in the uh, the, uh, the, the, the use of that word and, and how you're using it and you know talking to your franchisee was very interesting. You've got some very passionate franchisees in your system. So now that doesn't mean you're going to make money on a deal. 
Um, <laughs> so it's, we're going to get into that later. Right. Um, but but you've got so the beginnings of a very attractive transaction. And we'll get into as much financial data as you want later. We only have 16 minutes on this. But let me you know, let you start off with a little bit of your background and, and, and you know, what you're doing with the Great Harvest Bread. Sure. Thank you. Um, and thanks for having me. You know, when you, when you work at an advertising agency, uh, you get to experience the breadth of a lot of different brands, you know, while staying in the same place. And I was um, lucky enough to um, work with a great team that stuck together for a while. And, and the, you know, one of the core principles at McCain-Erickson is something that was called truth well told. And that starts with a digging, uh, a digging for the truth, which is kind of the background of my training. And that is what we would do with the brands. And, you know, in the advertising agency business, you have to, you know, basically pitch accounts to win accounts. And I think the thing that was a, a tribute to our success is that um, we really did dig for the truth and, and make our potential clients or existing clients kind of wake up to the fact of what they had going for them and leveraging that, um, both from a brand standpoint and a product standpoint. So... You know, when I just use the word authentic, I'm, I'm using it from the standpoint of um, there's, there's mythical brands out there, that, you know, the brands that are sort of created out of thin air or they're somebody's dream or they're a style brand. An authentic brand is one that I describe as um, having a set of principles and sticking to it and not veering from that. And, you know, some examples, one is, one is Coca-Cola, okay? I mean, there literally is a secret formula locked in a vault in Atlanta. Um, I do know that because about 30 years ago, my boss and his client tried to change it. Uh, that's something you might remember. Um, <laughs> yep. And there's various discussions about whether that was intentional or not, and I can't really comment on that. But no matter where you go in the world, Coca-Cola is the same thing. I'm talking about the product, not the company. You know, the brand Coca-Cola, you know, the logo, the shape of the bottle. The only thing that changes with that product is, you know, is the water. The syrup is exactly the same. Um, so that's an example of what I call an authentic brand. It, it stands for, the, you know, it's the real thing. Okay. And then um, another example could be, um, you know, I worked on Wendy's for quite a while. I mean, Wendy's, you know, it, it always said we're going to do right by the customer. We're going to do things, you know, it's going to be a better experience from a product standpoint. And, and that was a set of principles that Dave Thomas carried and, and, and infused without the company. In fact, I was told a story. Do you, do you know why Wendy's hamburgers are square? No. Tell us. <laughs> because Dave Thomas wanted to send a signal down, even down to the people flipping burgers, that at Wendy's we do not cut corners. <laughs> good. So good. if you learn nothing else, you learned that. Um, so it, it's really... Um, you know, in my experience, and one of the one of the things, one of the brands I launched in retail was Lowe's, and you know, Lowe's originated as a um, hardware store, you know, regional hardware store coming out of North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, that nobody had ever heard of, and was going to roll out against this incredible behemoth called Home Depot. Um, and when you get to the authenticity of Lowe's, you find out that there actually is a different store model. Home Depot is literally a depot, um, and Lowe's works off more of a central distribution, which allows them to model the store better. And they had this racetrack design on the store, and they did a lot of things right um, versus Home Depot. 
um, we dug and dug and dug for how do we compete with Home Depot because people loved Home Depot. You couldn't get anybody to say anything bad. It was just sort of a nirvana moment when when we were doing all this research. We said, you know, why don't we do research like we're Home Depot and ask people how we can get better? Well, the floodgates opened, and that's where like things like you know do a better job of telling us what products in what place. You know, make sure your carts don't always turn hard to the right when you push them. Thing, little things like that. And that's hmm. where the origin of Lowe's came from, which is the brand idea was improving home improvement. Hmm. Okay? So I mean, the, there's a lot of stories I could tell about so, that. Yeah, but so that, that, that's, a great, that, that's a great background. I, that, did that lead to the, the idea to get into the bread business? Well... Yeah, in some ways, yeah. In, in one way, there was just a set of coincidences which um, hooked me back up with um, the CEO of Great Harvest, who's a, you know my friend who I went to school with at University of Virginia. Um, and it was just kind of a weird coincidence that that happened, and I started talking to him about uh, something I was involved with, with like a loyalty, uh, a loyalty card, um, which was a startup I worked on very briefly. Um, but the truth about Great Harvest, the more you learn about it, it is very authentic. I mean, the, br- the bread is, um, you know, you commented about the bread. The bread, all the, the wheat must come from hand-selected farms that Great Harvest picks uh, in the go- what's called the Golden Triangle of Montana. And for the listeners, that, you know, the easiest way to understand the Golden Triangle of Montana is it's the Napa Valley of wheat. It's where the best-tasting wheat in the world comes from. And we hand-select that from a select group of farmers, and we procure that wheat for every single great harvest. That's point one. Point two is it comes as wheat berry to, these, to the local stores, um, to the local great harvest. So in 200 places around the country, they're getting wheat coming out of a silo um, as wheat berry, and they are milling it, they are stone milling it on site into flour like every day. So the flour is fresh. It's not coming in a bag as flour. And then there's some proprietary processes that we use, and everything's hand-kneaded. Everything's made by hand, baked by hand, baked fresh from scratch every single day. Uh, and then it must be sold within 24 to 36 hours, or we donate it to um, a food bank or a charity because we want everything to be absolutely fresh. Long story short, uh, we are making bread the way bread was made in the Bible. The modern era has not been good to bread. I mean, it's processed, it's made by machines, they pump uh, dough conditioners into it, they pump preservatives into it. I mean, all you need to do is go into the supermarket, pick up a piece of uh, a loaf of bread that you think is actually an artisan bread, and just read the label. Then pull out your encyclopedia and try to figure out what the heck is in there. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, our bread is made with five core, you know, key ingredients. It's, you know, it's wheat, yeast, water, salt, and our natural preservative in all the products is honey. Mm. Um, so even though we don't have preservatives, honey is a natural preservative. Our bread will stay fresh, you know, if you put it in a plastic bag and put a tie on it and not put it in the refrigerator, which is a mistake people make. Mm. It, it would last on your shelf for like 12 days, on your, on your counter for 12 days. It will not last that long because you will consume it. Well, you, you sold me. I mean, I tasted it, and the story is, is very compelling, and I think it's exciting to hear what you're doing on that product front. Let, let, me, let me get to the nitty-gritty of the numbers and, and share with sure. us what you can about, you know, I, I know you are profitable, and I know these units can be profitable, but as a business, you know, you can go overboard on quality, and you can, 
you can create a product that, that people will pay something for, but you'll end up losing money because it costs you more than, than it is to, <laughs> than the customer's willing to pay for. Talk about the, the business of bread and how you've been able to bring that down to the unit and how that makes some of your units successful. And we'll, and we'll talk candidly about what doesn't work you know, and what you need to fix as well. But start with what's working. Well, um, one of the big things that, you know, Mike Freddie and I have done is, you know, we're evolving, you know, you know, Great Harvest is, as the bakery cafe is, is, is really in its third phase of what an actual, you know, location looks like. Started out as a bread bakery, you know, with a counter and people would buy bread related products, muffins, scones, anything that we could bake, you know, from what I just described. In about the late 1990s, early 2000, you know, this is before I got there, you know, Mike and his partners determined and looked at the trends and people were eating out more. So we naturally evolved into serving sandwiches, um, but which was takeout. There, you know, there was very limited seating. But the reality is, you know, when it comes to a sandwich, you know, the thing that makes it a sandwich is bread. Otherwise, it's protein or mm-hmm. whatever you got in the middle. And for some strange reason, um, the middle gets all the credit. That's what it's named for. And, you know, nobody pays attention to what's on the outside. Well, the reality is when you put the, when you, when you curate the right bread, you know, and the different kinds of bread, like a Dakota bread or a cranberry orange bread to the right interior, you get an entirely different taste experience. So it's kind of like how people curate wine to their main course. What's your price okay? point? I mean, how much more do they have to pay for this enormous quality differential? Uh, you know, I'd say on average a, a loaf of bread can be six fifty to seven fifty. You know, it's going to be more than the you know, what the pseudo supermarket bread that you pay for, uh, but not that much more from what they would charge for an artisan bread. What, what's a sandwich though, and what's what's the uh, average? Uh, oh, a sandwich tickets? is about you know six fifty, seven fifty. It's it's very competitive. Yeah, that sounds very competitive. I mean, we're the thing is we're making this product from raw material. So the product, the actual material cost, we're not paying a markup, you know, as we move through the chain. I mean, we're, we're basically buying, you know, mm. natural product and we're making it, okay? Mm. We're making raw material into products. So that's, you know, it's the labor that, you know, you have to put into it, um, you know, versus paying, you know, people to like process, you know, to put, you know, pre-processed food into a microwave. That's the difference. Right. Yep. But, so there's you know, you benefit labor. a lot. You you know you benefit a lot from actually making the product from scratch. Hmm. Interesting. What's the? What can you share with us? The unit economics on these stores. Average? Well, yeah. I was talking about the evolution. The third phase of our evolution was to go from these you know what we call bakeries serving sandwiches and soup to now bakery cafes. Now, a, a, any great harvest that opens is going to be in one or two formats. One is a bakery cafe, which is still baking the bread, has about, you know, 2,800 square feet, and is going to seat 40 to 45 people. And is going to have a full menu of, you know, breakfast sandwiches, hot biscuits, hot breakfast, you know, sandwiches, scones, things like that, plus, you know, hot paninis, for lunch, soup and salad and, and grain bowls, which are, 
basically salad with roasted quinoa and roasted wheat berry. Eric, I hate to interrupt you because I love these. I, I, talking about food gets me all excited like this, but um, we only have three minutes. Um, I'd like to okay. at least address, you know, what is, talk about your core customer and your biggest competitors, and then we'll try to squeeze in some questions from Mark because I know this is, a, this is our first show and we want to get the rhythm going. So go, tell us about the sure. core customer and well, the competitor. Well, our unit economics on the, on the new format stores, all right, are – uh, our average unit volume. Now, our, our most of our locations are fairly rural, or they're not in. Let's say they're not in Manhattan. They're not urban. Mm-hmm. Okay? They're suburban, so they're going to be about eight hundred thousand um, dollars. A bakery cafe. Uh, the cost to build is about four hundred thousand, and you do a li- you know, over fifteen percent margin. Okay, and and who do you compete with in those markets? Well, essentially, we compete. I would say with Panera. Mm-hmm. Okay, because you know, but we're doing we're doing it uh, from scratch. Um, I'm not 100 percent convinced that you know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, but they're 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 very interested in being a fast casual. Their footprint is much larger. They're going to be in urban sprawl areas. Our footprint and our our method is to be like in the village, in the town, be much more local. And that marries directly to our Freedom Franchise model, which allows a lot of flexibility on the individual store level. Every store okay. can be different in terms of what it serves and how it serves it and when it's ours. It's it's a very localized version. So well, the easiest way to explain that. Uh, is, Eric, Eric, I only have one yeah. minute, and I want you to answer one question, and then we're done. Sure. What? Uh, how many units do you have now? How much money do you need, and where will be? Where will you be after you get the money? <laughs> just give me a, just a rough sense of dollars and cents. Well, we have two hundred, uh, roughly two hundred uh, right now, with about two hundred and forty units signed uh, to open. What we're looking for is for multi-unit. Exp- owner expansion. Most of the units now are, are one or two store owners. Okay. And there's a tremendous opportunity for expansion. We ran, uh, we've used Buxton Scout to Can, determine what our... Like double, store, triple, quadruple, I mean, what do you, how many no, units? No, uh, times... Uh, Times 10. Times 10. Okay. Well, Mark, I, I apologize because we're down to 30 seconds. Is there any urgent question I can uh, have Mark poke in here? <laughs> well, I love your product. Let me just say that. I'm a big consumer of it. I guess my uh, question is, who would find your company valuable, and what are you doing to push your company in the direction for the person or the firm that would ultimately find it most valuable? Yeah, I, I, right now I think um, a, a company who owns uh, multiple franchises in a certain territory, and what they have to do is ask themselves the question. All right, you know, whatever brand they happen to own, they own. And if they want to expand, ask yourself, who's Panera's primary competitor? <laughs> who is their competitor? <laughs> and, and, but, and, and, and Eric, with that, we're going to have to let the audience guess at who that potential buyer could be. But um, that, that's a longer-term thing. Most of our product, most of our show will be dealing with all the things that uh, y- you need to develop to get to that point. And capital is just the first one of them. But listen, it was great to hear the story and great to understand the, the, the great harvest, uh, you know, potential uh, growth plan. And you know, obviously, this is the kind of thing we almost want to continue on another show. But uh, sure. let, this has been a great introduction to the firm. And Mark and I will obviously be in touch with you later. And thanks again for your time. Thanks, Eric. Have a good one. 
Thank you for tuning in to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Be sure to join Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team 6 for another edition next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a nice week.